Welcome to Wine Crush, where winemakers tell the stories behind the vine. Thanks for joining us here on Portland Radio Project. Today, host Heidi Moore will guide us through the stories of two local winemakers. The first centers on second careers, a well-planned next chapter, and the pursuit of a shared passion. And the second comes from one of a multi-generational line of wine entrepreneurs who focus on an Argentinian approach to fermentation. Today in the studio, we have Bill Sweat from Winderly Wines. So happy that you decided to join us down here in Portland today. Thank you. Yes. Um, You did not start in the Northwest like so many of our guests that we've had in the past. And but you started in the Far East, not Far East, Far East, but Eastern United States. Yeah. In the Northeast. I I grew up just north of Boston and uh, went to school in Maine, started working and lived in a bunch of places after that, lived in St. Louis and Virginia and New York and ultimately Tokyo. And Which then, is a crazy uh, place to get transferred. It is. It yes. really fun, though. Uh, I can only imagine. I just, I don't know enough about the culture, but everything I see just looks like really a true adventure. I was surprised at how easy it was to get around and to make things work there. Um, and I think that's part of the culture is to make you feel welcome and make you feel like you belong and that you're part of it. And so, uh, you know, we had a great experience for three years. So after the three years, did you go back to the Boston area? We did. So we lived right in the city of Boston. And I commuted up to uh, Merrimack, New Hampshire, actually. And uh, my wife, Donna uh, Morris, uh, had a job not too far from actually where we were living. And um, we did for another four to six years. Uh, Four and a half for me and six for Donna uh, worked in our first careers. So where did the wine bug bite? Don and I met in the early 80s, so that'll give everyone an idea of how old I am. And um, we were working for the same company and fell into this small group of people who were just learning about wines. And in Boston in the early 80s, that wasn't a common thing. So it was really fortunate for us. And also where we worked in downtown Boston, there were three really good wine shops right around us. And then we both lived in neighborhoods with really good wine shops. And so that really began our discovery of wines from all around the world. You and I had a really interesting conversation when I was up at the tasting room a couple of weeks back, and we kind of had talked about the pretentiousness of wine and the overwhelming um, sensation sometimes of wine and the feel that it brings. And you had said that there wasn't a wine bar that was in your neighborhood that was intimidating to you. Yeah. I, I Now I look back on this and I think what a ridiculous business model it is to intimidate people so much that they're afraid to come into your store, right? Oh, absolutely. In the early 80s, that wasn't uncommon. And there was one wine shop actually very close to our office, which uh, not surprisingly, perhaps is out of business now. Um, And I can remember, you know, before going to a friend's for dinner, really kind of walking back and forth in front of the door, thinking like, oh, this is going to be such a chore, um, you know, to just buy a bottle of wine for dinner. But now I think the whole industry has really turned around and people want to help you and they, they want you to understand it. They want to demystify wine. And we do the same. We always tell people that wine is binary. If you like it, it's good. If you don't like it, it's not. 
And I love that adage because it makes it so much more pleasant, more pleasurable to drink, more, just more fun to be around it. And so with that, how did you get here? Yeah. So when Donna and I were working in Tokyo, uh, so we got this great offer to go work in Japan and we took it immediately. But a lot of our colleagues said, you know, our company's not really good at repatriating people. And so um, we weren't sure whether or not we'd find a job when we wanted to return home. And so we started thinking about other ideas. And the way our jobs were in Japan, Donna was actually my client. And so we figured out pretty quickly we could work together. So from that point, the idea became, if we don't find a job back with our company in the States, let's go off and do something on our own. That's a fun adventure. And so I'm assuming wine, which included Oregon, was the adventure. We didn't start out originally saying, absolutely, it's going to be wine. We, you know, we did some due diligence, like maybe we should try some other things along the way. Um, but we kept coming back to wine because we, by that time, we had built you know, a pretty decent cellar and it was our passion. I want to um, stop right there for just a moment because I want to talk really truly about how you found Winderley and the vineyard and how you got here. But we just need to take a quick pause. You're listening to the PRP Podcast Co-op on Portland Radio Project at 99.1 FM in the heart of Portland or streaming worldwide at prp.fm. We left off talking about your journey, your trek, your story out to Oregon, and I didn't let you finish. So you have a great story on the vineyard and really the founding of it and kind of where your direction came to it. Yeah, thank you. So I think where we left off was uh, Don and I had were returning back from Tokyo, and we actually both did find jobs uh, with our companies, but we had kind of planted that seed or been bitten by that bug, whatever you want to call it, to do a business on our own. And ultimately, we figured out that, you know, we have, we have such an obsession with wine that if we're going to be in business for ourselves, it should be about wine. And from that point, it actually got a lot easier because our favorite grape is Pinot Noir and our favorite American Pinot Noir was made in Oregon. So having made that decision, it was a straight shot to come out here. Actually, we're really fortunate um, that we were in the right place at the right time and ended up buying our favorite vineyard in the state. Um, And how does that actually happen? I mean, that's just almost a fairy tale story. It is, yes. So I think there's a lot of serendipity in life, right? I agree. You can work really hard, you can do all the right things, but sometimes it's just luck. And so we had actually made offers on a couple of other properties and hadn't gotten those properties. So if we had gotten any one of those, we wouldn't have been looking for a property when this one came up. So we just, you know, cross our fingers and knock on wood. That was good luck. For sure. And so your grapes are mostly estate. I mean, you do have a secondary location. Maybe, was there a third location? So we have our home estate, Winderly Vineyard in the Dundee Hills, and then we lease Meredith Mitchell Vineyard in the McMinnville AVA. But we also buy fruit from some really great vineyards like Shea and Crawford Beck and Weber. Um, So we're fortunate. There are so many amazing vineyards in the Valley. So tell us about your wine. So you've brought us a beautiful Chardonnay. I'm a massive fan of Oregon Chardonnay. It's just, it truly is one of my favorite things to drink and a special Pinot that I'm going to let you explain. Yeah, thank you. So I'll I'll take them in the Pinot first order. So the Pinot Noir I brought was our 2016 imprint Pinot Noir. And it's the only wine we make on the estate property. So we have this little, what I call a garage winery, what my wife calls a winerette. 
It is literally the size of a single-car garage bay, and I make about 250 cases of wine down there a year. Um, it's 100% whole cluster. We don't take the grapes off the stems, and um, that all goes in the fermenter, and we age the wine after pressing for 18 months and get it released into the market. So 2016 is our current release. We hold it back for a while before we let it out to the world. Um, and the Chardonnay is also our 2016, and that is all purchased fruit. Uh, it's uh, Carabella Vineyard and Highland Vineyard, and uh, a little bit from our least vineyard, Meredith Mitchell. But Don and I have been huge fans of Chardonnay, and when we started in 2006, not many people were making a Chardonnay. Pinot Gris was the big white grape of the state. But we felt like if you're in a world-class Pinot Noir growing region, you're in a world-class Chardonnay growing region. And so starting in our second vintage in 2007, we began making Chardonnay. There has been a huge comeback of Chardonnay the last couple of years. I mean, there's Pinot Gris has been that white grape of, of Oregon, it seems. Mm-hmm. And then Chardonnay has all of a sudden made this comeback, this nuance into the wine scene. It's come back really strong. I mean, the I think the number of acres planted to Chardonnay, if you would look at that chart, it would look like a hockey stick. It really is pretty dramatic. And there are vineyards and wineries now doing Chardonnay-only projects. We have the Oregon Chardonnay celebration now, which is a big thing and, and I think really getting out not just to the people in Oregon, but to the wine world with what Oregon's capable of doing with Chardonnay. It's, it's a pretty exciting time for that varietal. It is. And I know you are doing some extra things at the winery, so I want to get back to those in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll come right back and talk to Bill a little bit more. Thanks for listening to Wine Crush, where Northwest winemakers tell the stories behind the vine. If you like what you hear, why not give us a review on iTunes? It'll help us share Wine Crush with more listeners. Thanks. We, during the break, were just talking about the drinkability of wine and how the culture in Oregon and the United States is really a buy it and drink it, Mm -hmm. not buy it and store it. So how, when you're making wine, is that a problem? Is that hard? Is I mean, how do you tackle that? It's it is. It's a big a big challenge because we, my wife and I, like aged wines. So we, for our own cellar, we want to produce wines that we think will last twenty years or longer. Um, but we're also we you were know, tasting some two thousand sixteen wines now. We want people to buy those wines and be able to drink them with dinner. And so in the old world you know, 50 years ago, a winemaker would have made a wine that they expected to go in the cellar for 10 or 15 or 20 years. And so they would have they would have shaped their winemaking practices around that. Now we're kind of straddling both those worlds because we, we want a wine that's age-worthy, but we also want people to be able to buy it and bring it to dinner that night and serve it. Sure. And I mean, the whole conversation kicked off because we were talking about how beautiful and how elegant this wine is, uh, your Pinot that we're drinking now, and, and how easy it is to drink. And it smells lovely and it tastes, you know, really fruit forward. And I don't personally care for the ones that smell a little funky. And it's not because they're corked, but it just smells like the barn. Yes. So to speak, yours does not. So let's just make that really, really clear. Um, but it, there is just it, there is a difference in that winemaking style. And so it was just a kind of a, an interesting conversation that we were having kind of in between pieces. And that barnyard characteristic, it, so it's really interesting, actually. And it was a very common in wines 30 to 50 years ago. 
It's a spoiler organism called Brettanomyces. We refer to it as Brett. And a little bit of Brett actually can be a very nice, complexing character. So it can bring those kind of mushroom and forest floor kind of mouth, you know, uh, tastes and aromatics that are good. In larger quantities, it can be really off-putting. And so that's been a challenge. One of the great things that the wine world has learned um, over the last 50 years is sanitation. And so a lot of the things that would give us problems with wines, you know, 50 years ago, we know what those are and we know how to protect against them. I've had some pretty crazy conversations about sanitation with um, different winemakers and wine people lately. And that is, seems like 90% of the job is sanitation, making sure things are clean. Oh, it's absolutely. It's a huge thing. Well, you grew up with milk cows, right? So yes. sanitation is a big thing. And um, anything that people are going to put in their mouths, you want to make sure the sanitation is absolutely pristine. And wine is no different. Um, and we just want to make sure that anything that ends up in the bottle is intentional. For sure. And we're running out of time. And I want to make sure that we are mentioning the sparkling project that you have up there and your stunning tasting room. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, uh, so we we love our tasting room on the vineyard, and it's a great place to enjoy wine when you come to visit us. So Don and I, I always say that we're completely narcissistic about our winemaking. We only want to make wine that we want to put on our own table. And we are absolutely fanatical about sparkling wine. We probably drink two or three bottles a week. And so in uh, 2016, we started making our first sparkling wine. And uh, we've released that wine just but in the beginning of December. So it's our, our first release is is in the tasting room and on the market now. So come by and enjoy it. I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. It was, I am always excited when I'm greeted with a glass of sparkling wine. And it's just, I don't know, it's just such a great way to kick off a wine tasting and a visit to somebody's spot. So where else can we find you? It's a great question and a very hard question. So I will say, because with boutique wineries, you'll get a placement somewhere and then it will sell out and it might not get restocked right away. And so But we have really good uh, distribution in Oregon with vertical wine and beer. We're in a lot of specialty wine shops and a lot of restaurants. If you don't happen to see us, if you just let your favorite wine shop owner or manager know that it's available with vertical, they can get it for you. Perfect. And I'm sure things are on your website and head to Dundee. They're up on Warden Hill Road, and they do have a beautiful tasting room overlooking the valley. Thank you, Bill, for joining us, bringing us such beautiful bottles of wine and such a great conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. We'll see you soon. After the break, we'll meet our next guest, JP from Valken Wines. Thanks for listening. Why not head over to iTunes and write us a review? We'd love to hear from you, and it helps others find our show. For new episodes of Wine Crush and to discover other PRP podcasts, check out the PRP Podcast Co-op at prp.fm. Welcome back to Wine Crush, the podcast for wine lovers. Let's meet our next guest today, J.P. Vello from Valken Cellars. Thanks, JP. Thank you. You actually beat me here today, which that is impressive. No one ever beats me to the studio. (laughs) You're excited. I I woke up early and I drove. uh, Well, I was afraid of uh, Poland traffic. Yeah, I don't don't blame you. They also say it may snow today, so I say better uh, early than than sorry. I drove early and I walked outside on my phone. So now phones are computers, so you can do pretty much everything there. Pretty much so. Well, your story does not start even in the United States. You start 
further south? Yes, uh, down in Argentina. So born and raised in Argentina. And my family has been in the industry for a long time. So I went to college down there. I became a agricultural engineer uh, with a focus on vineyard management and winemaking. The only thing that I, as soon as I graduated, I came up here. So basically, got to work a few years down in Argentina and then uh, full-time in Oregon. So where did you land? So when you came up here, what was your intent? Where were you going? So this is back to 2001. Um, internet wasn't what it is right now, but um, one of my friends uh, was coming to Washington, and he actually found this uh, exchange program. And he said, well, I'm going there. And then, then I said, well, I'll, I'll look at it. And then, But for me, because I have a trip to, with the, we call it to Europe, and we'll spend like a month and a half over there, uh, the option for me were more like into either I can choose um, Oregon or actually I thought more about Napa Valley back in that time because of the, um, the wine they were making, they were close to uh, Mendoza. And um, But actually I'm glad uh, Oregon came up and then uh, when they also mentioned Washington, I wasn't aware there was a Washington State and a Washington, D.C. And I thought they were, they were talking about D.C. And I said, I'm not going there. And I just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it was the White House only thing. So anyway, so uh, <laughs> I picked Oregon and I uh, have a few friends that came earlier than that. And they love it. They talk about the lakes, the rivers, the Willamette Valley, the Pinot Noir. And this is back one. We were We have uh, that variety down south, but it was only for sparkling. And so make it into a white wine. Um, so never got to try uh, red Pinot Noir. So I thought that was a good good way to come up here, try a new variety, and then come back home and just keep working down there. Perfect. So when did your, because you, you have a day job as a head winemaker down in Lane County, but you have your own label that you and your wife do together. Yes. Where where did that start and when? And I know it has a little bit of story behind it. So I'm the head winemaker for Ceylon Ridge, and we all been allowed to make our own wines. Uh, I started back in '05, um, and uh, we'll be selling wine in China, so no no label on it, so people will buy the wine and put the label. So the idea is that uh, came from my dad. Actually, he wanted me to make a label with him, actually, down in Argentina. So since I moved up here, I kind of killed the dream for him. And so it was his dream that became now my dream, and now this is my kid's dream. So this is kind of going down. So it, 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 the idea was just to have a legacy for our kids. And um, so that's the Balkan uh, that I actually make it uh, within the Ceylon Ridge uh, winery. And Balkan is my last name, B-A-L is for Balo, and C-A-N is my wife, Cancel. So, so this is a 50-50 partnership with my wife. And so we, we two, we had two kids. I thought there was a... And if you actually take a look to the label, we have a petroglyph on the label, which is a, the Native American called the Taino down in, uh, in the Caribbean. And it's mostly in the Puerto Rico area, which is my wife from there. So when I come up with the idea of the label, uh, we took two years to come up with the label. So it had to hold all the wines for two years in order to, because uh, she said, if we're doing something, it has to be something that have a lot of meaning. So whatever is on the label has a meaning. Uh, I don't want to just come up with all the label. We, got, we have so many in the market right now. 
So the, the two birds are called, uh, which is our low, called uh, the thermal lowers. And um, those are the ones that actually represent us. So the two birds that we flew, so they're migrants, so that represent us. I love the labels, and you just brought us an amazing wine, but I want to talk about that, and I want to continue to talk about your labels in just a second. Thanks for listening to Wine Crush. You can find all the episodes of Wine Crush in the PRP Podcast Co-op at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with JP from Falcon Cellars, and I cut you off as we are just starting to get into talking about the wine. And as you were bringing out the wine, you brought off this lovely bottle of pink wine with no label, and which my... Um, lovely assistant over here thought was a dirty bottle of water, which it absolutely is the most lovely bottle of pink wine that I've had in a very long time. This is not a normal rosé. And it's not even a rosé. No, it, yes. it is a white It is a white wine. It's a white wine. Yes. yes. So I want you to tell the world what you have brought us, which is not dirty water, <laughs> um, and is something that people need to come seek out from you. Yeah, so uh, if dirty water tastes like that, then I'll drink dirty water. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Just bring me another bottle. Uh, so the, that's a brand new wine for Balkan sellers. So, and I believe we're probably the first one in the U.S. to make uh, a white uh, Malbec. And people probably hear, what the hell is a white Malbec? So it, it's, uh, it's an idea that came a long time ago. But I, I don't think nobody's done it before. But it's, it's so amazing. The variety, it's red variety like Malbec, which is really dark, concentrated. On the white side, or pink, actually, Malbec actually gets really fruity and floral and really smooth, silky, kind of like a, with a bright acidity, refreshing wine. So. This would be probably the quintessential perfect summer wine. I mean, it has this beautiful pale pink color, but it smells bouquet on it is just, it's beautiful, like honeysuckles and sweet peas. And I don't typically pick those smells out in a wine. I'm just like, oh, that smells good. Yeah. Yeah. And it smells like it should be sweet, but it's not. It's not sweet. It's dry, but it's silky and smooth and refreshing because of the bright acidity. And it has a long, long aftertaste, which is actually invite you to come back and get a nice sip because you, you swallow and that's one important part of the drinking the wine. When you swallow, you get more flavor coming up. And while you talk about with your partner or any person that you're sharing the wine with, so you get more, and then it's, it's more intriguing, and they say, mm, I'm still getting some. You get another sip. And that's the ideal for the wine because you probably will finish the glass or the bottle. So that's the whole cycle. This would be a very easy bottle to sit down and finish Potentially by myself, which is terrible to say. <laughs> but I'm glad that you say <laughs> that. I, <laughs> I don't usually sit down and drink a bottle of wine by myself but if in I the don't, evening. If Balkan wipe, you know, uh, Malbec. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even say it right. Yeah. Yes. So Valken white Malbec, Malbec, Malbec that is being released in March. It will be released in March. Yes. yes. And it will have labels by then. It will have labels. So new that actually it's a 2019 and I don't, I had to order the labels, so, but... It's coming, it's coming. So the whole thing is coming up. So what other wines are you doing? Do you have any of the other white wines that we should talk about really quickly? Because I want to spend some time in the last segment about your big reds, because you have some beautiful big reds. 
Yeah, so we have a Chardonnay, uh, which is one is a stainless steel shard and a barrel fermented Chardonnay, and then uh, the other nine wines are reds. So we have our own vineyard of uh, Pinot Noir with two options on the Pinot, and then we have the big reds that actually we purchased from the Rogue Valley, from the Medford area. We have uh, we buy grape from two different vineyards. And you said nine reds plus your two whites equals 11, and we are going to stop right there because that's a whole mouthful of things to explain and talk about really quickly. We'll be right back. You're listening to Wine Crush, one of our locally produced podcasts at Portland Radio Project. Get in touch, discover, and listen at prp.fm. We left off talking about 11 wines in your portfolio and growing, because it sounds like there's actually more this year. Um, we talked about the White Malbec, the Chardonnay, and then we have a lovely bottle of Syrah that was best of show, and some other big reds that you've got sitting on the table that you don't see in every tasting room. Yeah, the, the whole idea with our brand is actually to allow me to be more creative. So I, I can actually think about some, some idea that may sound crazy for someone, some maybe not for some other one. So the idea is just to, uh, I mean, as a winemaker, nothing better than uh, make new wines. And I, I like that. Unfortunately, with the, with the business, it's more complicated because you need to keep up with the demand, and also you work in the market, so the market has to be consistent on the varieties that you produce and the quantities. So my own brand is actually my own lab. So that's the one that actually I still have to go through my wife, which is not 100% free down there. But uh, <laughs> So the, the other one that we have, which I really love, is Tempranillo, uh, also from the Rogue Valley. That Tempranillo is a single vineyard, the same like the Syrah that you just tried. One single vineyard called uh, Belmont down in Medford. We also have a Petit Syrah, which is also awarded. The new wines that we're having is uh, Barbera. Uh, it's something that I, since I have a, an Italian side in the family, uh, always been uh, willing to actually try some of the Italian varieties. And also we go with uh, Grenache for blends with Tempranillo, and then it will be a new blend. So the Barbera will have my uh, my mom's last name, which is Giorlini, uh, so it will be on the Italian side, and it will have a new blend of Malbec uh, Cabernet Franc that will have my last name. So so I want to honor my dad and my mom on, on the new labels I have. So that's coming in probably two years since we just made them. So the one, the current one, so that we have the blend of uh, Petit Syrah Syrah, which is really famous right now. Also uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, which is really like. That, uh, and uh, so the Malbec side, which is, I actually get the question if I have a Malbec on the Balkan. I won't have a Malbec straight since I have one with Ceylon Rich and just want to, I like the idea of that always the Malbec has been our baby between uh, my relation with Ceylon Rich, so I'll keep it that way. But I just want to come out with blends of Malbec and that's the idea of the, the white Malbec and also a blend of Malbec on the front. Wow. I mean, it's just, that's a lot. A lot, I mean, yeah. It is a lot. And it's really something to go out and seek out and find, which leads me into the fact that you just opened a new tasting room. We did. We yes. Did. And people need to come find you and drive I-5 to... Corvallis. Yes. 
I was trying to think of the highway between I-5 and Corvallis. I can't come up with uh, it. So just go to Corvallis. 34. Yeah. 34, thank you. Yeah. I would 34. Don't come during um, kind of uh, the month of uh, in, in February because they get uh, some time uh, underwater. <laughs> but, you know, we get that. Uh, but it, it's uh, open, just opened a new tasting room uh, in Corvallis. So we are the only tasting room in Corvallis. Unbelievable. It's, it's not a big city, but it's big enough that we don't, don't have many. And um, so we are on Second Street uh, next to the post office, which is uh, at the Old World Daily uh, building, which is one of the oldest buildings in, in Corvallis. So that daily has uh, all, more than 40 years. So it's, it's just a lovely place. And people actually, amazing, actually, people come, they do the flights so or they order wine and they stay for hours. I mean, like, literally, it's enough room for everyone. And... And I like that ambience. So I don't, I don't get to be there that often because most of the time I'm working. But uh, we have a friend that actually run the place. It's really approachable, and uh, that's why we always get the nice comments about that uh, we were talking about with Bill, uh, making sure that when you get into the place, you feel welcome and uh, you have a great experience because the experience is what you need to for in order to taste the wines. Absolutely, I think that's really important. So. Make sure and find Valken Cellars on Facebook and Instagram and drive out to Corvallis and taste the flight. And he has also friends' wines at the tasting room as well. So thank you, JP, for driving down, being early, and sharing this, I don't even know what, this beautiful pink wine. It smells so good and tastes amazing. So uh, thank you. Wine Malbec. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll, see. we'll see you soon. Thank you for having me. I appreciate yes. it. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Wine Crush. Have a great weekend, and we will see you at the bottom of the glass. Well, we had to take a break because Jenna said so. But... (laughs) 